Welcome to the Locust Valley Chapel Sermon Podcast. Our mission as a church is to help you discover, develop, and demonstrate life with Jesus. We pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to you as you listen to today's message. And if you'd like more information about our church, you can visit our website, locustvalleychapel.org. And now, today's message. If you're able, I want to invite you to remain standing. We've got a lot of verses we're going to cover today in Acts chapter 2, and I want to read them. And standing sometimes just helps us stay a little more focused. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we read, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, and when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, They asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. So Peter stands up starting in verse 14, and over the next 28 verses, he explains to the crowd that what they see happening is what the prophet Joel predicted would happen when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And then he shares the good news about Jesus, how Jesus lived and performed many signs and wonders and miracles, and how he was crucified for our sins and resurrected, raised from the dead, and he's exalted to the right hand of God the Father, and he is now both Lord and Messiah. 3,000 people respond to his invitation. They repent. They put their faith and trust in Jesus. They receive the Holy Spirit. And verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. You can take a seat, and as you're taking your seat, let me give you the title of today's message. If you're taking notes, I'm calling today's message, Powerful Moments and Persistent Pathways. Powerful Moments and Persistent Pathways. The powerful moment in verses 1 to 13 is what Jesus predicted in Acts chapter 1, where he told his disciples, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait Wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. He says, in a few days, you will be baptized. That's just a fancy word that means you'll be immersed with the Holy Spirit. And then a few verses later, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you 
will be my witnesses. And so what we just read in Acts chapter 2, this is that powerful moment that Jesus predicted. Powerful moments. While powerful moments with the Holy Spirit, every powerful moment, especially this one, has certain uniqueness to it. There are, there are certain elements in this Pentecost moment that are present in many, if not most, powerful moments with the Holy Spirit. And I want to point out three things that moves of the Spirit often have in common when the Holy Spirit comes in power. First, when the Holy Spirit comes in power, there is often a tangible expression of the presence of God. There's often a tangible expression of the presence of God. This, this powerful moment at Pentecost is something that they, they heard. Verse 2 says, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. There's also something that they saw, verse 3, they saw what appeared to be tongues of fire separating, coming to rest on each of them. And in the Bible, wind and fire are sometimes ways that God manifests his presence to his people. Let me give you a couple examples. Job chapter 38, verse 1, tells us, The Lord spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. So God was manifesting his presence, speaking to Job out of the wind. Another example, in Ezekiel chapter 37, God gives Ezekiel this vision of this valley that's full of dry bones. And the Holy Spirit tells Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones. And as he does, he hears this sound of rattling, the bones coming together and, and then tendons and flesh and skin forming and appearing on the bones. And in verse 9, the Spirit tells Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath and say to it, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into those slain that they may live. So I prophesied, Ezekiel writes, as he commanded me and breath entered them, they came to life and stood up on their feet. See, guys, both the Hebrew word in the Old Testament and the Greek word in the New Testament that, that is translated spirit, it could be translated spirit, it could be translated wind, it could be translated breath. So there are times in the Bible where God manifests his presence in wind. There are also other times where God manifests his presence in fire. For example, Exodus chapter 3, verse 4, Moses is out tending his father's sheep, and he sees this bush that's burning. It's on fire, but it's not consumed. And so he goes over to look at it, and God speaks to him from that burning bush, manifests his presence from this place of fire. Later in Exodus 13, after God leads his people out of Egypt, it says that, they, that he led them by a, by a cloud during the day, but then by a pillar of fire during the night. So he's manifesting himself through, through fire. It's a tangible expression. So when these disciples hear the sound of the wind, when they see what seem to be tongues of fire, it's one of those moments where they're getting a glimpse of the tangible presence of God. And we see that many times when the Holy Spirit comes in power. Second thing that I want us to see in this powerful moment is they experience being filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's this experience of filling. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. So not only does the sound of the Spirit come filling the house where they were staying, but the Holy Spirit himself fills all of the believers with himself in that present 
moment. And then finally, I want you to notice that all of them were empowered by the Holy Spirit for witness. Verse 4, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. When that happens, it says they began to speak in tongues or other languages as the Spirit enabled them. So as they're empowered, they're able to speak in languages. There's at least 15 different languages in this passage that they, that they had not previously learned. These guys were all from Galilee. So this was an action they could not have done unless the Holy Spirit had enabled them and empowered them. So there's a tangible expression of God's presence. There's an experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And there was the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for witness. And these three elements are common in a lot of powerful moments. The actual manifestations in what the Holy Spirit does may look differently, but powerful moments often include these three things. Tangible expressions of God's presence, experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit empowering us to do what we could not do apart from him. We see this in at least three other occasions in the book of Acts alone. For example, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were released and they go back to this group of believers who was praying. They've been, they've been warned, you better stop teaching and preaching in Jesus' name. And these believers pray in verse 29 and 30, now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Did you catch all three elements are there? Same three elements that were there in Acts chapter 2 are there in Acts chapter 4. There was a tangible expression of the presence of God. What happened? The place they were meeting was shaken. They felt it. There was this experience where they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 31 says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And there was this, they were empowered to do something that they could not do without the power of the Holy Spirit. It says they all spoke the word of God boldly. In the face of threats, these, some of these are the same people that deserted Jesus when he was arrested. Before the Holy Spirit came upon all, now they're empowered to stand in the face of these threats and just proclaim the word of God boldly. So you have expression, you have experience, you have empowerment. Acts chapter 10, we see the same thing. Peter's speaking at Cornelius' house. There's another powerful moment with the Holy Spirit. Verse 44 says, while Peter was still speaking these words, he's telling them about Jesus, the good news, the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now, at this particular powerful moment, we're not told how the Holy Spirit tangibly expressed the presence of God. But something must have happened. Because Peter is going on and on. He's speaking about Jesus. He's telling them the good news. And it says the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. How did they know? Like it says that the, the Peter and all the other believers were astonished. Like if something, 
didn't happen, I don't think Peter would have stopped and been astonished. So we know that something happened, and again, it's not important exactly what happened. We're going to talk about how it's often different what happens in a minute here. But there was some sort of expression of the presence of God. There was also the experience of being filled. Verse 44 describes it as the Holy Spirit coming on all of those who heard the message. Verse 45 describes it as the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out on them. Just like in Acts chapter 2. And then they were empowered in this moment. Verse 46 says they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now we're not told here whether these tongues were other languages like in Acts chapter 2 or whether they were unintelligible words like 1 Corinthians 14. We're not even going to go there today. It really doesn't matter because either way it required the Holy Spirit's power to do something they couldn't have done without him. And then one more example, Acts chapter 19. Paul is having this conversation with these new believers in Ephesus about the Holy Spirit. He's asking them if they've received the Holy Spirit. And they're like, Holy Spirit, we haven't even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And so Paul's telling them about the Holy Spirit. Acts 19, verse 5 to 6 says, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So once again, tangible expression of the presence of God. Something happened when Paul placed his hands on them. They felt it. They experienced being filled with the Holy Spirit. Here it's described again as the Holy Spirit coming on them. And then they're empowered to do something they could not have done apart from his power. They spoke in tongues and they prophesied. The kind of things that Peter explained happen when the Holy Spirit is poured out. And again, these are just some of the ways that the Holy Spirit empowers believers in these powerful moments. I want to make one thing very clear. The Holy Spirit does not always work the same way in every situation. So we talk about these powerful moments. He doesn't work the same way in every powerful moment. In fact, Watchman Nee put it like this. He said, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon God's people, their experiences will differ widely. Right, we're going to keep this in mind. He writes, some will receive new visions. Others will know a new liberty and soul winning. Others will proclaim the word of God with power. And yet others will be filled with heavenly joy or overflowing praise. We saw all kinds of that stuff in the three examples we just looked at. But if you try to put powerful moments into a box... What I mean by that, if you fall into the trap of thinking that the Holy Spirit has to do something a certain way, otherwise it can't be the Holy Spirit, or if we fall into the, the, the trap of believing that, well, if I don't feel him in a certain big or powerful moment the way somebody else feels him in this big and powerful moment, you're almost certain to miss him when he does come in power. And here's why. I was super intentional about not calling these moments with the Holy Spirit big moments. Although some of them were big. I was intentional about not calling them spectacular moments. Although some of them were spectacular. But I didn't call them either of those. I called them powerful moments. And the reason is this. Just because a moment doesn't seem big or spectacular doesn't mean it's not powerful. I mean, how many know that when Elijah came out of the cave... In, second, in 1 Kings chapter 19, and he positioned himself on the mountain, a great and powerful wind came, but Scripture tells us that the Lord wasn't in the wind. 
Now, wait a minute, we just read in Ezekiel 37 that the Lord was in the wind. But here in 1 Kings 19, the Lord wasn't in the wind the way he was in Ezekiel. And then after the wind, it says there was an earthquake that shook the earth, but it tells us that the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. Well, he, would, he shook the place where the believers were praying in Acts chapter 4, but, but here in 1 Kings, it says the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. It says after the earthquake, there was a fire. Now, just a few days earlier, Elijah experienced the presence of the Lord in fire. There was this amazing encounter where he said, look, we're, we, we, are, we are just tired of, of people worshiping other gods. Let's get together all the prophets of Baal and all the false gods. Let them make a sacrifice. I'll build a sacrifice to the one true God. Both sides will call on God, and the one that answers by fire, he's God. And so Baal's prophets, they call on their prophets all day. They, nothing, silence, n- absolutely nothing happens. Elijah steps up. He's, he has them soak this sacrifice that he's prepared, calls on God, fire from heaven comes down, and it, it literally like licks up the sacrifice. It, it burns up the wood, the stones, the soil, all the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw this happen, man, they hit the ground and started crying out, the Lord, he is God. That's a big moment, guys. Where God showed up in fire. And Elijah would have, would have missed him in 1 Kings 19 if his expectation was that God has to come in fire all the time. Because in, in 1 Kings chapter 19, God didn't come in fire. Verse 12 says, The Lord was not in the fire, but after the fire came a gentle whisper. And it was the presence of God in that gentle whisper that got Elijah out of the funk that he was in. Because he was pretty depressed at this moment. Wasn't the fire? Like, so why I'm sharing this with you is because there's a lot of times where we think, man, if I could just experience the wind, or if I could just experience the earthquake, or if I could just experience the fire, then I'd be encouraged, then I'd be, and God's going, no, 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 maybe it's the whisper. Maybe it's something you haven't even thought of. I don't know if God had ever spoken to Elijah in a whisper before, but the whisper was what it took to get Elijah back on track with God's purposes and God's plans for his life. And I'm sharing this because I believe this. I believe the Holy Spirit is inviting us into more powerful moments with him. But we will miss those moments if we begin placing expectations or demands on the Holy Spirit that differ from how he's choosing to express himself in that moment. He's the one that gets to decide how he wants to express himself. He decides how he's going to fill us. He decides how he's going to empower us to do what we cannot do apart from his power. So the first thing we learn from Acts chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit sometimes comes in these powerful moments. And I love when those moments happen. They're amazing. I'm praying we would experience more of them. However, there's a second thing that we learn from this chapter and, and really from the rest of the book of Acts, and that's this. You cannot stay and live in those moments. They're just that. They're moments. Amazing. Powerful. Life-changing oftentimes. But you can't stay there. I mean, I wish we could. Like, man, I've had these moments with God before where his presence is so tangible. I'm like, God, I want that all the time. And yet he doesn't let us Stay there. There's, this, there's these moments where like, I identify with, with Peter, one of Jesus' followers. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on this mountain. 
and Jesus is transfigured before them. Matthew describes this experience like this. It says, Jesus' face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. I mean, you want to talk about a powerful moment. Like, this was incredible. I mean, I would want to stay on that mountain. We probably, a lot of us probably have those experiences where maybe we go away on a retreat or maybe we have this quiet time with God. It's just amazing. We're like, God, can't we just stay on the mountain? That's what Peter wanted to do. Peter was like, Lord, it's good that we're here. And it was good. You know what he wanted to do next? He wanted to build three shelters. He said, I'm going to build three buildings there. We're going to put one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But Peter, you can't stay on the mountain. Why? Because there's kingdom work to be done. What does Jesus do? He leads them back down off the mountain because there's this boy there that needs a demon cast out of him. So he needs to demonstrate the kingdom of God. We can't stay in those moments that we'd like to stay in. In fact, that's not the purpose of moments to stay in them. The purpose of powerful moments is to prepare us for and to transform us into witnesses empowered to testify in both word and deed the good news of Jesus Christ. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, not so that you can stay in that moment, but so that you will be my witnesses. So the kingdom of God, it often manifests itself in powerful moments through the Holy Spirit, but it spreads and it continues through persistent pathways. Persistent pathways. Here's what I mean by that. 3,000 people are added to the church in response to the powerful moment in Acts chapter 2. But we can't stay in those powerful moments. So we need to ask ourselves some, some deep questions. We need to ask ourselves, like, if I just experienced the wind, or if I just experienced the fire in that moment, how can I adjust the sails of my soul so that the wind that I've just experienced can continue to move me and affect me and transform me? Or how can I fan the flame of the fire that just fell on me in that moment so that it doesn't grow dim and it doesn't burn out? How do I do that? Well, verse 42 describes these four persistent pathways that help these guys abide in Christ, stay connected to him, and live a Holy Spirit-empowered life together in community, bearing witness to the good news of Jesus in word and deed. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I want to suggest that these four pathways are the pathways that the greater works that Jesus said we would do if we believe in him. These are, the, these are the pathways that those works travel through. Notice they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they weren't just devoted to learning, they were devoted to living. Living it out. Why? Because that's what the Jesus had taught them. Jesus got to the end of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he said these words, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, lives them out, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And so the aim of the apostles' teaching was not just the transfer of information, it was whole life transformation. 
Whole life transformation. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, All scripture is God-breathed. There's the wind again. And it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means that we as a community, as a community of faith, we should be teaching the Bible to each other in community, not so that we can know our Bible better, but so that we can know God better so that we can know ourselves better, so that we can know each other better. This is about whole life transformation being formed in Christ. This means allowing the Holy Spirit to use the Scripture to rebuke us when we're wrong, to correct us when we're going off track, going in the wrong direction, to, to train us in the way of Jesus, the way of righteousness, so that we can live like him, so that we can be equipped to do every good work. This book is God-breathed, meaning not only did the Holy Spirit breathe on those writers who were writing it down, but he breathes on us and makes it come alive when we read it and when we teach others the Scripture. Rob Reamer writes, As we pick up our Bibles, we have to remind ourselves that we are one Holy Spirit breath away from a fresh encounter with the living God. And we focus on meeting him and wait for him to breathe on the passage. Pray that prayer in your D3 groups. Pray that prayer in your men's group or your women's group or people that you meet with. Pray that prayer in solitude when you're reading the Bible. God, would you breathe on what I'm reading? Right? Hebrews 4, 12, the word of God is living and active. It's not just some lifeless book. God, breathe on it. Let your Holy Spirit make it come alive and transform my life. That's the first pathway they were devoting themselves to. That's how they kept that fire and that wind going. A second persistent pathway was this, fellowship. They were devoted to the fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship is the word koinonia. You might have heard that word before. Doesn't translate easily into English. It doesn't have like a word for word equivalent to it. It has the idea of sharing, has the idea of a shared life, participating in something together. I like to think of it as uh, participating in the life of Jesus together or being on a mission together. And the fellowship was described here as one where everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So you notice from this passage, guess where some of these powerful moments take place? In the context of the koinonia, the fellowship among the relationships between believers. This fellowship is one where in verse 44, it says all the believers were together and had everything in common. Not at all meaning that they were not unique individuals, but they put their unique individual needs and wants and desires second. They put caring for one another, serving one another first in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can hear it in verse 5. Uh, it says, I'm sorry, no, verse 45, it says, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And when we get to Acts chapter 4, we're going to read that there were no needy persons among them. Why? Because they allowed the Holy Spirit to move them to be generous. They weren't forced to do it. They were moved to do it. They understood that being a Christian was not some, some individualized thing that they could live out by themselves, but being a Christian was about being part of a body, being part of a family. I meet people sometimes, they go, oh, can I be a Christian? Do I have to go to church to be a Christian? No, but you have to be part of a family, and if you're part of a family, you're going to want to go to church. <laughs> you're going to want to be with the family of God. 
In fact, the word Christian is found only three times in the New Testament to describe followers of Jesus. You know what other words are used to describe his followers? The word disciple. The word disciple, it's a Greek word, mathetes. It's used 269 times. Disciple means a learner. It means an apprentice. How many know apprentices don't just learn from books, they learn from bodies, some bodies, (laughs) or a group of bodies. We're called the body of Christ. Being a Christian means being part of the family of God. Another word that's used to describe Christians in the New Testament is the word Adelphia. You guys know what that means, right? We live just an hour north of Philadelphia. What does Philadelphia mean? The city of brotherly love. Philadelphia is translated as brothers and sisters. It's used 350 times in the New Testament. Jesus calls his disciples brothers and sisters. So can you live as a Christian by yourself? I don't know, maybe. But when I look at how the New Testament describes followers of Jesus as disciples, as brothers and sisters, I, I don't think we can. I think we were meant to live together. Jesus called, her, called his disciples brothers and sisters in verses like Mark 3, 35, Matthew 12, 49 to 50. Romans 12, 5 says that in Christ, we, though many, form one body. So it's not that we're not unique, but we form one body. It says each member belongs to the others. When we're just doing our own thing, living our own life, when we're not living for the sake of the others, you know how the body suffers. There's no room for the rugged individualism that drives our culture today. Instead, there should be a togetherness. The church should be this prophetic voice that speaks against that individualistic culture that says, it's all about me, it's all about my wants, my desires, my dreams, my values. There should be just togetherness. That, that, that should be, we should be a... Uh, the way we live should show an alternative way to live, the kingdom of God way to live, where everyone's using their God-given gifts to serve and build one another up into maturity. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says this. When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. That's, that's a different attitude than what we often see today. That's the coming and saying, hey, God, what can I give? What can I offer? God, how do you want to use me today? As opposed to, God, what can I get? How can I consume? How can I be fed? saying, like, how can, how can I give what God's given me for the sake of others? This is what true koinonia looks like. People participating together in the mission of God. And then a third per, per, persistent pathway that they were devoting themselves to is the breaking of bread. Now, they were constantly sharing meals around tables. They, were, they grew together around tables. There's some, now, there's some questions among Bible scholars. Is, is the breaking of bread here? Is he talking about the Lord's Supper? Is this communion? Or is this simply sharing a common meal? And my, I would say it's both. I would say it's both. Because when the early church gathered around tables to share a meal together, they recognized the body and the blood of Jesus that was given for them. These were not like affinity groups that got together because they liked all the same things or they, they, they believed all the same stuff or they voted the same way. Or they, no, these, these guys were radically different. This was, these were diverse group of people coming together. What they shared in was the body and blood, and they, they recognized that. I like the way 
guy named Wolfgang Simpson puts it like this. He says, the Lord's Supper was a substantial supper with a symbolic meaning, not a symbolic supper with a substantial meaning. I like that. The Lord's Supper was a substantial supper. It was a meal. They called those early, when they gathered weekly in the early church, they called it a love feast, an agape feast. That's what he's saying here. He's saying this was a substantial supper that had a symbolic meaning. It wasn't just a symbolic supper that had some kind of substantial meaning in it. It was deep. Verse 46 says, every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So I want you to notice that there, these pathways that they pers- persisted in, they included gathering in larger groups like we're in right now. They, they went to the temple courts, but they also met in their homes. They met in smaller groups. And both were formational. Both helped keep the wind and the fire going and spreading the kingdom of God. That's why as a church, we're so committed to what we do here on Sundays in this larger gathering setting. But we're just as committed to what we do in our small groups. We value it just the way Jesus did. That's why we have D3 groups. That's why we have men's groups. That's why we have women's groups. Because when we come together, not always around a table, but man, maybe we should. If you're in a D3 group, D3 group, tell your leader, you know, hey, let's, we should gather around a table and have a meal together. Yeah, that might be, that might be even more transformational for you. But, but when we come together, we're coming together to be formed around the transformational work of Jesus Christ. We don't do it because it's easy. In fact, it's really, really difficult to do small groups in a church. But we're committed to it because we're committed to living the way of Jesus. And how did Jesus live? He taught in large groups, and then they gathered a small group of disciples that he was committed to, and they were were transformational. Finally, there was this fourth pathway they were devoting themselves to, was they devoted themselves to prayer. The literal translation is, and to the prayers, you see in the ESV translation, which is on the screen there. That could indicate that there was some some regular rhythm, there was some regular pattern of disciplined prayer. Acts chapter 3 tells us Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. The point is this. Prayer wasn't just something that they did when they felt like it. Prayer wasn't, it seems to be something that just like every other spiritual discipline that we talk about, needs to be practiced intentionally and regularly if it's going to help us stay connected to Jesus in a way that we live our lives the way he would live them if he were us. Because at the end of the day, that's what, that's what the kingdom of God, that's what Jesus being Lord and Messiah is all about. We're, we're becoming like Jesus. What these persistent pathways were doing is it was, it was a way of them being with Jesus together so that they could become like Jesus together and do what Jesus did together. And we said last week, the book of Acts is a continuation of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now they're doing it together. This is essentially just Christian life together. And we get to the end of the description of these four pathways, and we read these words. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So God was using these pathways that they practiced in community to draw people to himself and to transform lives. And I believe he can use the same four pathways today to draw people to himself and to transform lives. But here's the last thing I want to draw your attention to and then we're done for today. And that's this. 
This is hard stuff. It's easy to read a passage like this and go, man, this looks really good. It's easy to read the book of Acts and go, man, they they look like they were a perfect church. Far from it. There is no such thing as a perfect church. If you find one, don't go to it. You'll ruin it. (laughs) We're people. People are messy. This stuff's not easy. I'm not saying anything I'm saying today so that you leave here feeling guilty and going, oh, I got to do more. No, I'm I'm sharing this stuff with you because I think it's better. That even though it's hard, even though it's messy, even though it's difficult, Jesus says it's better. You'll experience the life that he wants you to live. That's what what the conviction is to the core of my being. And so I want to draw your attention to one word that I've used repeatedly when talking about each of these pathways, but I was waiting to the end to explain it. And it's the word devoted. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to these four things. It does not say that they did these things if they found time to do them. It doesn't say that they they did these things when their calendar wasn't so full. It doesn't, it it, it means, it it says that they, they devoted themselves. That word means to be steadfastly attentive to. It means to persevere in. It means to continue all the time. It's in the present tense. The New American Standard, which is on the screen there, it translates it most accurately. They were continually devoting themselves to this. Why do they have to continually devote themselves to it? Why do I, why do I call these persistent pathways? Because you've got to persevere through this stuff because it's hard. Like it's not easy. This is how, like doing life together in, in a community, it's difficult. People are messy, but they continually devoted themselves to it. It means they didn't drop out when life got busy. They didn't quit when things got hard. We live in a quitting culture. Stuff gets hard, walk away. Don't like the decisions that they're making in your church? Leave, find another church. Don't like your spouse anymore? You know, well, that's the culture we live in. They didn't quit. They were devoted to this stuff. Eugene Peterson, he has, has this book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Not one of those titles that really grabs you like, oh man, I don't know if I want. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's phenomenal. It's, it's based on the book of Psalms. And he writes this, living together in a way that evokes the glad song of Psalm 30, 133, which by the way, if you read Psalm 133, it's all about how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. But Peterson writes, this is one of the great and arduous tasks before Christ's people. Nothing requires more attention and energy. It's easier to do almost anything else, he writes. It's far easier, he writes, to deal with people as problems to be solved than to have anything to do with them in community. So we avoid this stuff that has the power to transform us because it's hard, because it's difficult. Now, if you think small groups are easy, get involved in one. They're messy. But read the Gospels. Jesus, Son of God, had one of the messiest small groups you can ask for. Because these guys are arguing over who's going to be greater in the kingdom of God. Who's going to get to sit next to Jesus. He's constantly telling them, like, how long do I got to stay with you guys? Don't you have any faith? Peter, he's got to get in his grill and say, get behind me, Satan. 
Again, Peter is one of his closest friends. Denies, pretends like he doesn't even know Jesus. Groups are painful. Say, Pastor Joe, you're not selling groups very well here. (laughs) They're transformational, though. I don't think you could fully know God or fully know yourself unless you're in relationship. How do you do the one another's in the scriptures without being connected to one another? Jesus could have did all this stuff by himself. He could have just went out and preached and did all the miracles. and did, What did he do? He formed a group. He took these 12 men, took this small group of people, you know, 72, 120 that are experiencing Acts chapter 2, and they transformed the world. Transformed the world. These pathways, they're persistent because they're not easy, but they're transformational. I think, there's, I think there's two things that transformed the world then, two things that are going to transform the world now. Powerful moments, persistent pathways. But they don't come without commitment. They don't come without persistence. They don't come without problems. You don't get koinonia without a cost. But I believe with all my heart that this, is the, the, this kind of community that we read about in the book of Acts, as messy as it is, and it's going to get messy. I mean, we're going to get to chapter 5. You're going to see what happens when people lie about how much they give. I mean, it's crazy. But this is the kind of community that I believe every one of us longs for, whether we know it or not, whether we admit it or not. I also believe that if we'd, we'd experience many more powerful moments if we'd persist in these pathways. But I think that one of the greatest issues in the world today that we live in, that the church has the answer to, is the problem of loneliness. Loneliness is like epidemic. Like we think COVID's bad. Loneliness. Lonely. I, I just read article after article about people's loneliness, and we've been, you know, locked in for a year and a half, and it's even, I think it's even worse. In fact, Mother Teresa, she called loneliness, and loneliness the leprosy of the West. The leprosy of the West. She said it's like a disease. She said in many ways it's worse than, than the poor in Calcutta. And let me tell you, she died almost 25 years ago. We're a lot more individualistic now. We're a lot lonelier now than we've ever been at any time in our life. You look at, look at our, our, the structures we live in. Look at our houses. Don't come with front porches anymore. <laughs> a lot of times the garage is out front, right in the house. And you pull into the garage, you close the door, and where do you go? The back porch where you don't have to bother with anybody. And we miss the life that could be ours. So I want to leave you with a quote that I read this week. And I want to, I want to say this before I read it to you because it, it, this quote could sound kind of harsh. It could sound like I'm trying to guilt you into doing something that you don't want to do. This is, that is not my intent. Okay, I want to say this from the start. This is, take what I'm about to say as, as an opportunity to make a change in your life, okay? So there's this guy named Kerry Newhoff, and he posted this this week on his Instagram page. I think it's from a new book that he has coming out, but he wrote this. Stop saying you don't have the time. Start admitting you didn't make it. He said, when it, 
I didn't put the whole thing up. But he said, when it comes to time, you and I are rich. Time doesn't discriminate. With the two exceptions of the day you're born and the day you die, everyone gets exactly the same amount of time. When Jesus walked on earth in the flesh, he had the same amount of time that you had, same amount of time that I had. So he goes on to write, you can make excuses or you can make progress, but you can't make both. So again, don't hear this as me trying to guilt you into doing something you don't want to do. That doesn't do anything. See this as a, 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 a possible motivation of the Holy Spirit inviting you into the more that you could experience if you would stop making excuses and start making progress in these areas of seeing these powerful moments take place in your life and persisting in those powerful pathways together that help the kingdom of God spread. So I want to take two minutes to close in prayer. And I want to ask the Holy Spirit to just reveal to us what stands in our way of us experiencing these powerful moments and these persistent pathways. So would you join me in prayer? Father, there is so much in Acts chapter 2 that we could have said. (laughs) So much we could have looked at. But I believe that when you boil it all down, it comes down to these powerful moments and these persistent pathways. This life together that you invite us to live. And so I want to ask your Holy Spirit to reveal in a gentle way, Lord, if there are any excuses that are standing in the way of us experiencing powerful moments, persistent pathways. So Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has never made a decision to put their faith and trust in you, to make you Lord of their life, to turn from living life their way and saying, Lord, I want you to be king. I want you to be Messiah over my life. I want you to have rule. I want you to have reign. I want to experience this kingdom. I want to be part of your family, your body, and I want to learn what my part is to offer through the power of the Holy Spirit. Is there there anyone here that would want to make today the day they stop making excuses and just say, you know what? I'm going to be like one of those 3,000 people that responded in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to repent and turn away from living life my way apart from God. I'm going to put my faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm going to receive the Holy Spirit into my life who adopts us into his family. I now belong to the body of Christ. I belong to these other members. And I want to live my life the way Jesus would live it if he were living it for me. And that means that we should expect that we'll experience these powerful moments in our life where there'll be these tangible expressions of God's presence and these experiences where we're filled with the Holy Spirit and this empowering to do what we cannot do apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. But we also recognize we can't stay in those moments. And so we fan that flame and we catch that wind 
through these pathways, through persisting in these pathways, that together we're going to live out the word of God together, the apostles' teaching. We're going to do that together in groups, that together we're going to have this fellowship. We're going to be connected on this mission of God. We're going to use our gifts to serve one another together. That together we're going to eat together around tables because we recognize that, that that's one of the ways that we grow. We don't, we don't grow best necessarily by sitting in rows like this, but when we sit in circles and share stories of what God's doing and how he's transforming our lives, we see lives change and that we would persist together in the prayers, the, the spiritual disciplines. And, and often, man, we think about spiritual disciplines as things we do individually. And yes, there's a place for that in, in solitude to connect with God. But I want us to think about spiritual disciplines that we can practice together. Because they, they weren't just praying individually. They were praying together. And that these four pathways would be the paths that the kingdom travels through, that they would be the pathways that the greater things that Jesus said we would do come through. That as we come together in our D3 groups, in our women's group, in our men's groups, and as we come together and invite each other over to our homes around a table for meals, that, God, you would be making a difference in our lives. You would be transforming our lives through the messiness, through the hurt, through the pain, through the difficulties. You'd be taking that, redeeming it. Your grace would be overflowing on us. And we'd become more like Jesus. And we would be offering the world what they're looking for, a genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So God, may today be the day that we say we're done with the excuses. We're moving forward. In the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name.